The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And it is my honor and pleasure today to welcome a friend, a colleague, a fellow registered dietitian who is only in the United States for three short weeks before she goes back to her job in Malawi, which is in East Africa, where she serves as a nutrition advisor for the United Nations. Stacia Norden, welcome. Thank you, Melinda. It is so great to speak to you because you bring a perspective that is not normally in our view. So you have been in Malawi for 17 years. Why don't you let our listeners know how you got there and why you stayed? Well, there's maybe one step before I went to Malawi. I went to school at Ohio State University, and as soon as I left Ohio State, I joined the Peace Corps, and I went to Jamaica, and I worked with the health department there in a clinical nutrition job for two years, and I met my future husband, also a Peace Corps volunteer. So we went back and worked in jobs in America for two and a half years, got married, and decided to join Peace Corps again after looking into many organizations. We call it the international bug. We just couldn't seem to sit still and the international calling called us. And Peace Corps sent us to Malawi. And when we both got there, we just fell in love with what we were doing. They placed us in a job perfect for both of us, so we were both quite happy. And the government and Peace Corps really liked what we were doing. And Everything took its own step. We never really tried. We just tried to stay open and follow our passion. And we should let our listeners know you are a registered dietitian. Your husband is a social worker. And you first went to Malawi. You were going to be working with children who they had either lost parents or they had parents with HIV. Is that correct? That's correct. I worked with anyone living with HIV or affected HIV. And so you were mostly working on their nutritional status, if I'm understanding correctly. Yeah, I worked more on nutrition and my husband worked on HIV education because in 1997, HIV was just becoming known or accepted. And we went to Malawi on behalf of the Malawi government and we were in one of the earliest HIV programs there. And I thought I would be doing, like you described, working with families living with HIV, but there was a lot of work to do before that because people weren't accepting HIV. It was took about four or five years until people really started coming forward and wanting help with their own health or their children's health in a nutrition fashion. So at the beginning, what did the people of Malawi who you were working with, what did they perceive their needs to be? Definitely not HIV. As we went out into the communities our first few months, everyone was asking for support with food, asking for support with seeds to grow food or fertilizer, thinking that water was a big problem, yet we were seeing a lot of water wasted. Since we came in with fresh eyes 
as it happens in your house and my house and everyone's home, you get used to a certain way of being. When someone new comes in, they might catch something a little bit different. So we saw things in, in new eyes, but no one thought that HIV was a problem because you only saw the symptoms, which people had seen for many, many years. So that's what really got us into the what we're doing now with nutrition, working with everyone to have stronger immune systems to prevent any sort of disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we should let our listeners know that you have created a permaculture living space around your home. And as it turns out, you're teaching sustainable ideas for living that are naturally embedded in permaculture universally, and you're making a great impact with that approach. When we came to Malawi and we started learning about the foods of Malawi, Everything we learned, we started to apply around our house. They were all new foods to us. So as we went out into the villages to work, we would collect seeds, people would share knowledge with us, and we would plant them at our home. And a lot of people became curious as to why we would make these changes to a government home that wasn't our home. But we had very strong convictions about caring for the area around us. And our home started becoming a food forest after about a year, and visitors started coming. And after about six years in our government home, we moved to the back of the research station, and we've had our own home there for 11 years, doing the same thing, able to move a lot quicker since we know a lot more about the foods of Malawi, and not to brag, but becoming quite experts in the different species that are available So now many people come to visit governments, different projects, local universities, and we do all of this just as part of our life and how we live. So people come and visit. We have composting toilets, water harvesting. We use no chemicals at all. Anybody can do the things that we do. We try and show how it's good for a president and good for someone who is as poor as you can be. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's called Never Ending Food, and we have a website, www.neverendingfood.org, and we do a lot of promotion. And we're able to do this because I work full-time with the UN. Mm-hmm. So we don't charge anything. Uh, we do take interns now, so we have three interns with us right now. They become certified in permaculture over a year or two, and then they slowly move out into the community until they become trainers and get jobs. And then we take new interns. So we're constantly trying to build up the youth. You know, Stacia, what I thought was so interesting, there's an article on your website, Never Ending Food. It's a blog, I believe, and it it was part of the worldwatch.org blog, actually. Mm. And it was written about the USAID using permaculture to assist orphaned and vulnerable children. It talks about the work that you and Christoph are doing. But there's one line here that really struck me, and it was that you are helping to educate the community about indigenous vegetables and to reduce the cultural fixation on monocropping. Where does that fixation on monocropping come from? Yeah, we saw it in the research station, and it goes back to... You know, for me, nutrition is very broad, and the only solution to having good nutrition is biodiversity. But a lot of people see nutrition still in medical eyes, feeling like you have to change something to achieve nutrition. So either putting a fertilizer in the soil, changing the plants so they have different nutrients, 
or adding some sort of nutrients, you know, as we do with milk or fortifying different things and that that's nutrition or getting a pill at the hospital and that's nutrition. Um, and I see it in the States. I see it a little bit in other countries, but I, I definitely see it in Malawi. As soon as you say nutrition, you are talking about the health system. You're not talking about biodiversity. Hmm. I don't know where it started. You know, I it was that way when I went to school in 1991, I graduated. And breaking through that and getting people to realize that the diversity that we have can give us the nutrients we need, people are skeptical of it. Even though we have 600 species in Malawi that can give us all the nutrients we need, we don't have businesses built on that. And I, I think that's one thing, that people have a hard time seeing connections and believing that we can really get everything we need from a healthy diet. Yeah, it's like believing that you have everything you need already there mm. instead of importing and having inputs that are expensive and potentially toxic. And from the United States side, the messages that we get here, and you probably are aware of them, are that we need genetically modified food, that we have to have golden rice, that somehow that's going to solve the nutrition problems rather than bringing forth a more diverse food system from plants that are already growing in the region. Exactly. And I, I can't speak for America, but I know in Malawi, for many years, once the colonialists came in and then after the colonialists left and the dictator took over for a number of years, the constant message was as things of Malawi are not as good as things from the outside. So it was ingrained in people that, oh, our local vegetables, our local fruits are for poor people and beneath us. You know, a status mm -hmm. food needs to come from the outside. There's quite a lot of organizations working in Malawi, and each of them have their own opinions on how Malawi's solutions should be achieved, and sometimes it pulls the governments in different directions, pulls Malawians in different directions, where they're not quite sure what the solutions are. And that's one of the things we work on, is really trying to get people to understand and think for themselves, really get people to read explore their own resources in their own way and make their own decisions, you know, with being bombarded with all sorts of different messages from businesses or government. I think we really need to do more research on biodiversity to prove that it can work. Yeah. But most researchers tend to focus on one thing, you know, or two if you've done research. The more variables you put in, the more difficult it becomes to do the research. Does Malawi import much of their food, do you know what percentage is imported versus feeding themselves with their own diverse food sources? I do not have a figure on my head, but Malawi focuses mostly on maize, and for the last few growing seasons has had more maize than they need. You know, food is based on carbohydrate. It's another problem we see around the world where most of your calories tend to come from a heavy carbohydrate source, whether it be rice or wheat or potatoes or, as it is in Malawi, maize. And we're trying to help break that as well. But we don't need to import maize if we manage our maize stocks appropriately. But there's a lot of management issues 
and the maze is at a national level. It doesn't necessarily mean that everyone has it, but I can't answer how much is imported. I mean, it mostly for people in you know higher level positions would get foods from outside the country, but mm-hmm. almost everybody grows their own food. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Stacia Norton. She is a fellow registered dietitian, only she has a unique position in that she is a nutrition advisor for the United Nations working in Malawi, which is in East Africa. Stacia, I have to ask you about the pressure, if you see any pressure to plant genetically engineered crops, if there's any trade pressure to bring U.S. corn in to replace Malawi crops, what does that look like from where you live? Definitely from genetically modifying seeds. It's Monsanto came into the country about the same time as we did and started buying into seed companies and taking over our national seed company. I mean, they're very strategic in their work with farmers and universities. The first GMO application was submitted this year for cotton, but I've just heard that several other GM products are right behind it. Um, Cowpeas, I think, was one, which is something I need to catch up with immediately. But most people in Malawi don't know what that means. You know, they don't understand the difference between genetically modifying something versus just hybridizing something versus open pollination. There's a lot of pressure from the government and certain development partners, we're called, to go in the direction of genetically modified products because of climate change or because of a certain nutrient deficiency. There is a biofortified corn that they're looking at that's orange and You know, we need to counteract not just with why we don't need it. We need to also counteract with the actual solution of biodiversity. We need to show that it works and be more strategic in the way that we're presenting biodiversity. We need to give proof, and that's what they're doing with genetically modified. They're going and doing trials and trying to show that it's working better than uh, one of its equivalents. But as you know, over time, I'm, you know, trying to get people not only to look at these trials, but look at experience in weed resistance or herbicide resistance, I mean, and super weeds and the cost of the system. There's so many things to consider other than just doing a trial for a year or two. Do the farmers not worry about the application of the herbicides that go along with these genetically engineered crops? And are they fearful of losing the ability to save their seeds? I I haven't heard any fears with that at all. You know, people do get worried that they have to buy seed, and they know that it's difficult to buy the seed and the fertilizer again. But the solution that most people I talk with come up with is you need to give it to me. You know, or the government needs to give it to me. Not, not that the system needs to change. Um, mm. There's a lot of dependency on external organizations um, and the government. So it's it's another part of our education. Um, when people come to our home, we talk about seed systems. We talk about solutions that are available, and not just talk. We show them. So you know, we start with opening people's minds, and we have a food display. It's actually a resource display because it's foods and medicines and different ways you can make money on biodiversity. Some people still 
it's not just that you need to grow and eat in subsistence, but there's a lot of money to be made as well in permaculture thinking, even more. Has there been any opposition to the work that you and your husband are doing? Yeah. People want it to be simple. And I think it's one of the reasons for the monocropping you brought up earlier is you can just count up a row of corn and calculate and say, this is what I'm going to get. At my home, I'll have an acre of things that are harvested different times, and it's much more complicated to measure what comes out of my yard in a year versus a plot of corn. So one, perceived complications. The other thing is some people see researching traditional foods as going backwards instead of going forwards. So we're trying to raise the status of traditional things. We're lucky that right next door in Zambia, there's many, and even some places in South Africa, there are people that have pride in their local resources. It's a small movement, but it's there. We also have Slow Food in the region, who is very strong, and we've just become part of our local chapter. There's only five of us, but we're growing very quickly. <laughs> but started by Malawians, which is a very big step. I think those two are probably the biggest, you know, that it's complicated and that some people feel it's taking us backwards instead of forwards. Hmm. Well, well, I think the beauty of the slow food movement is that it does build pride in what mm-hmm. people have in a region. So I'm hopeful And I'm really hopeful because of the work that you're doing. And I'm also hopeful because of something that you shared with your dietitian friends here in the States, which was a review of the International Symposium on Agroecology at the Food and Agricultural Organization in Rome in September of 2014. And it was the first time that the FAO ever officially and directly addressed the topic of agroecology. But you're up against a lot, aren't you? You're up against political forces moving you away from this agroecological perspective, and I hope that you, I hope that you can hold your ground, so to speak. Yeah, I think I think FAO is lucky right now with the director general that's in place. He really believes in people. He really believes in. He does believe in biodiversity, but cooperatives and people having control of their own food, food sovereignty not a top-down approach to food, and I think it's the only way forward. Yeah. Well, since you and your husband went to Malawi, you had a daughter there. Mm. And I'm wondering what it's like, compare and contrast for me, what it's like to raise your daughter in Malawi versus when you come back to the United States. What are her reactions? What do you see Well, what I see from my perspective, you know, there's quite a lot of freedom in Malawi. I don't see much of her when we're home. She's in the community. She's quite grown up compared to the people that I interact with here who are quite often on their phone at her age. She's 12 now or watching TV. I don't think we've we've turned on the TV a couple times here, but not very often. Um, She carries herself in a different way. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. And for me, it's we have the whole community still. I don't have to worry with her being out all day. But here, yeah, you got to keep a closer eye on her. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. And this idea of you've gone so far away from what was normal, and now you have a new normal. Mm. 
And, and that's an interesting concept, too, is that you've left behind what you grew up with, and you're creating a whole new cultural experience for your daughter around food and lifestyle. Mm. And then you come back, and it must be difficult for you to readjust. Yeah, it is. We've done it for 17 years now, so it's much easier. We mentally prepare for our trips home, and yeah, it gets easier each time. There are lots of great things going on here in the U.S., and we've found a lot of it in our travels. It just needs to grow a little bit bigger and spread a little bit more so that everyone is thinking differently. Right. So with regard to sustainability and working those into our dietary guidelines, what would you like to see based on what you've witnessed in Malawi? In America, dietary guidelines. Yeah. How would you take what you've learned in Malawi and improve what we do here? Can you believe I don't know our dietary guidelines in uh, America very well? That's okay. You know, our, um, our dietary guidelines are being revised right now. You know, every five years yeah, they're revised. I, I should know them better. You know, I do watch them a little bit around the world. I really like the ones that came out recently in Brazil. Yes. And it's much more holistic. It thinks of food from its source. Um, Because if I'm eating something, there's so many things that impact it along the way. It's not just nutrition guidelines, they're dietary guidelines. So I'd I'd like to see them thinking big. And I saw a post recently that the government has not even recommended, guided the committee to not consider environmental impacts. And I think that's a step in the wrong direction. Our food systems are for the health of us and our our future of our food system. So I would just like us to think very big. Yeah. In fact, I think you sent us all a note that said, hey, nutrients come from food and water. We've got to protect that. (laughs) There's a concept. Yeah. It's just that basic. And how, I mean, 90% of our nutrition, if I had to guess, is based on food and water. It's only a little bit that's dependent on, you know, the health of our environment. And it's To me, it's the foundation and the base. And from that, it's our environment. You know, the environment is even a deeper base for our food and water health. Right. So there's as much work to do here as there in Malawi and probably around the world. I do like seeing what Brazil has been doing and over the last 10 or 15 years with its focus on food and belief in food, good food for everyone at every age. The other thing we need to break in Malawi is when people hear nutrition, they not only just think health, they think, oh, nutrition is for women and children or pregnant women and children, that it's not for, you know, me as a man. Mm -hmm. And it's starting to change as we see diets change from just carbohydrate to carbohydrate and a lot of fat and a lot of salt and in richer diets and more alcohol and the resulting health problems. So men and adults are starting to get the message that, oh, food does matter. Mm -hmm. So let's pretend that you are speaking to a group of young agriculture students. They're at a land-grant university, and they're hearing about all of the ways that genetic engineering is going to save countries like Malawi. You're living there. You're experiencing it. You have a great blog post, actually, on genetic engineering, and I want to recommend that website again. It's www.neverendingfood.org. So what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to give those students in agriculture a message. 
And then I'd also like for you to give all of us a message in terms of what we can do to better protect the entire planet and, and our whole planet's food system. Okay. Well, I regularly have the agricultural colleges come to our home. <laughs> and the first thing that I recommend is for people to look deeper about how genetic engineering is even possible, what the process is, and how it works. And Bill Nye, the science guy, has a great video, just a short, maybe 15-minute video, showing people that genetic engineering can be it's it's quite a I don't know if I should use the word dangerous but it's uh it's it's risky. You know, we don't really know what we're doing introducing a foreign gene into a species and then putting it out there. So it really in in the end of his recommendation is we need to fully research things. We can't play around. You know, we really need to have a scientific approach and in genetic engineering is not a scientific approach. It's a test. It's a it's a let's let's see, and if it's not labeled, how can we even say what's happening in our society right now? So we're really in a losing situation at the moment, and I hope that we can just at least start labeling what is genetically modified and start making the connections between the symptoms we're seeing in society and where this might be coming from. And I would say the same thing for chemicals. We're putting a lot of chemicals out there without fully researching before we, we throw them out into society. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's all I would say, really. You know, I, I could go into a spiel about why we don't need genetic modification. I, I guess that's what I would probably talk about next is the solutions, that biodiversity is the solution for the resilience of our food systems, the nutrients in our food system, making sure that the environment is protected because the environment needs the same thing that we need is the biodiversity. It's how the environment stays healthy. Mm -hmm. And for people living here, how can we or what can we do to better assist people on far-reaching places on the planet in terms of sustainability? The same thing again. First of all, start educating yourself. Doing as much advocacy as you can in your own way in teaching other people. Getting involved, if you can, in our government decisions in how we support other countries. Countries can have their own solutions and can be supported to follow those solutions. A lot of development right now is doing for people instead of the slower approach of working behind people and helping them come up with their own solutions, guiding them a little bit here and there with some facts, but people need to make their own decisions for their own solutions. It's not sending money somewhere and handing it out that's going to solve the problems. It's all about education and ownership. So I guess the other message would be be in it for the long haul. You know, really take part in our systems. It's not a short-term, oh, you know, it'll be solved in a couple of weeks. It's it's forever. It's our lives. Mm-hmm. Well, Stacia, I want to thank you so much for carving out time with me today. 
In closing, I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I also want to let our listeners know that we have been speaking with Stacia Norden. She is a fellow registered dietitian and nutrition advisor for the United Nations working in Malawi. Her wonderful website is simply www.neverendingfood. Stacia, thank you for all of the work you're doing and for helping us see more globally the full picture of the food system. You're welcome. Thank you for having me, Melinda.